Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is a, a true, true legend. And we are thrilled to have Martin Barr, who for more than 40 years was the lead guitarist with Jethro Tull, one of the most iconic rock bands of all time. So Martin, thanks so much for doing this. We're thrilled to have you. Yeah, thank you, Matt. Nice to be here. Great. So Martin, I'd like to go back and I've watched a lot of stuff with you in the last few days, you know, getting ready for this. And I'd love to start by talking about your remembrances of a little place on Water Street called the Marquee Club. Yeah, well, uh, that's we lived in London. I, I mean, it's, it's a bit like New York um, in the late 60s. If you wanted to play music, you pretty well had to be in London. You could be in Birmingham, which is where I was from. You could be in Liverpool. <laughs> but essentially, London was, was the, the, uh, the centre of all music and new bands. And the marquee was where every musician went to listen to music. Uh, and, you know, every night there were bands on and some really great bands. So I, I was there listening. I, uh, I played there. I played there. With, with the band before Jethro Sell, I played there with Jethro Sell. It's, it's a really important place. I, I read a great story where the Stones were playing there and Keith Richards was late to a gig and he jumped out of his car and left it in the middle of Wardour Street and they get on stage <laughs> and they're playing and, uh, and then someone said, whose car is that blocking all the traffic? And it was Keith's. But it seemed yeah. like that was a real epicenter for bands, the Yardbirds, the Who, so many others, must have been oh, an incredible yeah. must have been an incredible time. Yeah, well, it, it was a club in as much that you, you, we knew the owner, John G, and we knew everybody there. It, 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 it was a little community, a big community. Everybody knew everybody else, and you could go on your own and meet a bunch of friends any night. It had a it had a great camaraderie to it because we're all there for the same reason. We, we wanted to hear great music. And we wanted to play great music. So it was a a nice focal point. Great. And so going back to uh, early days in Kings Heath and Birmingham, your dad I read had wanted you to embrace music and gave you a clarinet at a young age. He didn't give me a clarinet. He, he wanted to play clarinet when he was a lad, uh, and and he. He could never afford one, <laughs> and um, the family w w weren't very um, <clears throat> well off, so he had to go into a factory to work at a young age. But he he loved music, he loved jazz, he loved the big bands. Uh, and then w when I saw a band for the first time when I was fourteen, and and went out and bought a guitar because I was just overwhelmed by it. Um, he, he was very subtly, but but sincerely supportive because obviously it's something he, he'd wanted to do and couldn't and and I was able to do it so he he, he gave me some records to listen to uh, Barney Kessel, Jimmy Smith, um, Wes Montgomery, Kenny Burrell and uh, which I didn't like because I just wanted to play rock and roll <laughs> but I love the flute. I lo uh, Frank Wes was on one of the records that he gave me, and and I loved that flute. So I went out and bought a flute within a year of buying a guitar, which is why I've always been a flute player as well. But um, yeah, so my dad, 
he didn't really push me, but he, he, in a very nice way, he, he was there for me. Fantastic. And who were you were listening to? You said you dad exposed you to a lot of the great jazz and you wanted to play rock and roll. Mm. Back then when you were a teenager, who were you listening to? Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, Eddie Cochran, Buddy Holly, uh, Elvis Presley. Uh, uh, <laughs> I think of all these names, a lot of instrumental groups, um, including the Shadows. But uh, yeah, the, 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 we're just hungry for information and anything that came from America, we pounced on it. We wanted to buy it. There wasn't much available, but we, we'd buy it, share it. You know, everybody shared the, the records and uh, and we just wanted to know how to play this music and just listened and listened to it, try to work out what was going on. But because it was drip fed, uh, we were thorough. So, you know, we, we by the time we got the next record, um, we, we'd completely learned the one that we bought a month ago. And uh, American music was everything. There was nothing in England that was cool. The Stones were cool. Uh, the Beatles were sort of okay. Um, but no, American music was what we soaked in. What about the early American blues artists? Did you listen to Muddy and Howlin' Wolf and stuff like that? There's very little coming in because it, it was um, it was more. It went from rock and roll to um, R and B, soul music, um, Motown. It went through all these sort of um, trends, and it sort of went away from guitars. So, which is why I ended up playing saxophone to make a living in a band and I played a bit of guitar but essentially that that got put in in the in the uh, case for most of the gig and then the they had the blues train and the, the blues train was a tv program that came to the UK where all the blues artists Muddy Waters included uh, Freddie King, B.B. King, Albert King, uh, Albert Collins, uh, Sonny Brown, Terry McGee, that <laughs> they're all on this train and they travel around England and, and they come to a railway station, get out the train, set up on the platform and play. And, and, and it was unbelievable. Here they all were, they're all playing guitar and it's amazing. So I, I was never somebody to sit down and learn all the licks and all the little bits. But I just loved the fact that guitars were becoming important again. So it, it just opened up the floodgates for me. Saxophone, out, guitar, in. Fantastic. And so uh, about 1967, 1968, and that somewhere in that period, um, a guy named Mick leaves what would become Jethro Tull. And you were not the first to be auditioned. No, it was a big gig. You know, um, Toll were emerging to be a major band in uh, in the UK, and and I because I played flute, 
I never stopped playing through it. So I was playing Roland Kirk blues flute with the guitar. And uh, one day the drummer said, oh, I've seen this band at the marquee. Said, you're going to love them. The guitar player's great. A bit like Eric Clapton, really smooth, bluesy, sustainy sound. A sort of wacky flute player. He plays like you. And I'm like, what? There's another one? And so, and apparently he'd heard of me. He'd been told the same story. Hey, there's a guy. He's playing like you. So we knew of each other. And it was probably three, four months before we actually met. We played a gig together in Plymouth by sheer coincidence in a club uh, down the road from me. Uh, we met and th that's how they knew about me, uh, that they remembered me when Mick left, but they couldn't remember my name. And they, they couldn't, they, or the name of the band. I don't know why, but they eventually found me. Yeah, but yeah, everybody was after that gig. It, it was um, Mick Taylor, Paul Kossoff. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, every guitar player in England, whether they were working or not, wanted that gig. Um, I mean, dozens, maybe hundreds of guitar players. And, and the audition was a room, big room, uh, with, a, with a Clive Bunker in the middle and Glenn Cornick playing. Ian just sort of wandering around and, and the wall was lined with guitar players holding their guitars and they each had five minutes to do something. It was always a 12 bar blues, which I never did. <laughs> I never played a 12 bar blues. I still don't. Um, so it, it, it was horrible and, and I played really horrible. Uh, I played so badly. I said, do you want to hear a bit of flute? <laughs> and they're like, Oh, all right then. So I played, I was great on flute. But anyway, uh, so they picked Tony. And I think I was in like the top three for some reason, um, the, the shortlist. Tony didn't like the music as much. So he made a decision to not carry on. And, and I called in, I said, look, how's it going? You know, how's Tony work out? And he said, well, by coincidence, you know, it, it, it isn't. I said, well, I'm sorry to hear that, but can I have another go? And, and of course he said yes. And then we spent the whole day rehearsing at this pub. And that was it. And Tony went on to Black Sabbath and you end up in Jethro Tull. Everybody was happy. Fantastic. And do you remember your first gig? I think it was at the Winter Palace in Penzance. Do you yeah. remember anything from that very first gig, Martin? Oh, yes. <laughs> I remember the journey down. I see that's not far from where I live either. It's about an hour from me, an hour and a half. But from London, it was like a seven-hour drive. So we all start in London in Clive's car. Ian's in the back asleep, and me and Clive are sort of chatting away. But we're really late, really late getting there. The whole audience are completely comatose because it's like 11 o'clock at night. Uh, so we're, we got the gig, we're climbing over, over all these bodies lying on the floor. It wasn't a good gig. It was terrible. Uh, so I do remember it. Uh, yeah, we, there's about three or four club gigs in the UK. And, and then we went to um, Scandinavia and we were Hendrix's support band. Right. And go, that was my exactly where I was going next. So... You support Hendrix, then you end up in the U.S. supporting Vanilla Fudge and Led Zeppelin. 
that must have been incredible for you, and it all happened so quickly. Yeah, yeah. The, the it, it was people didn't like us. I mean, or should I say, people didn't like me in in uh, in England because they're expecting blues, they're expecting a Mick replacement, and they didn't get it. They, uh, you know, I wasn't like Mick. The music wasn't the blues; it was the music from Stand Up. And, and at first they didn't like it. So there's this very awkward period where we're sort of discovering if what we were doing was going to work. Um, and slowly they came round to liking it, by which time we went to Scandinavia, um, played some more gigs in the UK. It, it, it wasn't instant. Uh, and then going to the US was the biggest thing ever. You know, it's everybody's dream whether you're a musician or not in those days to get to the, the USA. Uh, and then, you know, as you know, that the Americans really liked us. And, but stand up was a number one record. Yeah. Yeah. We, we were amazing. So someone liked it. Oh yeah. Yeah. They, they, they did. Yeah. It, it was just because it was such a, um, a departure from from being a blues band, and, and there were so many blues bands, all sounding the same, that people were j just shocked by you know wow it's this is a, a completely new take. Jethro Tull's done a U turn, and it, they just had to get over that and just give us a chance, which they did. In America, it was different because they had no idea what we we're going to be uh, musically. That they didn't really have that pre concept. So it, it was more instantaneous. Um, but yeah, it, it was exciting and it, it, it was amazing and, and wonderful um, how well it all happened for us. Happy and I'm smiling, walking miles to drink your water. You know I love to love you and above you there's no I guess if there's one consistent thing you can say about Tall is that the band really changed and became so many things. It was never one thing. It was never one genre. And you were sort of first in many ways in carving that new territory. You were not just an evolutionary, you know, 12 bar blues band. No, no. I, I think, you know, me and Ian shared this, idea and we never spoke about it we just had it where we didn't want to follow any trend never had and we didn't and we weren't going to but it wasn't something we did just for the sake of it we just wanted to hear different music and just sort of very broad be very broad-minded and uh that Jethro Solid being that way and and hopefully I still am um since those early days it's but, but that's music, you know, I, I just can't understand people who aren't that way because uh, all music is great. <laughs> well, no, there's good and there's bad music in all the genres, but um, you, you just have to encompass and soak in all those things. That, that There's so much great stuff, you know, bluegrass, 
classical music. It's, it's, it's beautiful. Amazing. And early on after stand-up, you end up at the Newport Jazz Festival. Yeah. That was uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, it was a concept of, of mixing jazz with rock. And, and it's there's two things that I don't think work at all. That's one. And the other thing is classical music or orchestras playing with bands, which uh, Toll tried a lot in it, and it was just awful. And uh, it just, in my mind, does not work. The only thing that I've ever seen work is um, an orchestra with the Eagles. And and I don't know why it worked. It was, but they, they had a, it, it, musically, it, it gelled. Right. It's the only thing I've ever heard. It sounded great. They had wonderful orchestrated parts. The songs are beautiful and lean towards an orchestral arrangement, but um, other bands, you know, so and so uh, at Carnegie Hall with the New York, with the New York Philharmonic, no, <laughs> no, <thank laughs> you. Oh. It's like you know, can you imagine Led Zeppelin with an orchestra? It, yeah. it, it, to me, it's wrong. However, anyway, go on and on about it. No, that's okay. That's okay. Yeah. I, I music, you know, I, I love. Uh, orchestras but leave him alone gotcha gotcha so you uh then have a string of albums that are anyone who's a collector you know we all have aqualung we all have thick as a brick and the band really blows up did you see it coming were you surprised and it must have been an awful lot of work you put those albums out in succession i'm sure you were touring heavily it must have been really quite heady for you. Yeah, I mean, when I look back on on the, you know, I've, I've actually written out, not recently, but you know, the years and what we did, and, and and I was so shocked to see, you know, we're doing an album a year. I mean, it was immense. Uh, we 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 never stopped, but you know, we were single. We didn't have families. Uh, probably didn't even have a house and <laughs> lived in a flat somewhere so we were able to go on the road for three four months uh, uh, I mean we, we were touring musicians that's what we were doing for a living uh, it, it was a huge amount um, and in some ways I've, I've been almost doing the same in, in the last three four five years um, uh, so it's, it's not unnatural but we we, we we were definitely prolific. Amazing. And you also ended up on, you know, one of the great things that I think is lost today um, is there were all these wonderful music television programs back then. You know, you had Top <laughs> of the Pops. Um, there were others on Granada television way back when. You know, we had here in the States shows like Shindig and, yeah. and Hullabaloo. Mm -hmm. Do you remember early on, that must have been a big deal to be on top of the pops? Uh, this next record is my record of the week on Radio 1 next week. I just thought I'd throw that in. It's a rather nice seasonal offering from Jethro Tull, and it's called Ring Out Those Solstice Bells. <laughs>
Well, I have to say, Top of the Pops was was pop music, and and I think that 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 a lot of you know, Cream were on it, Hendrix was on it, Pink Floyd, but they sort of did it as a bit of a joke because we didn't mime. You know, rock musicians didn't mime. It, it wasn't something we did, but you mimed on top of the pops, and there's a bunch of kids sort of dancing to everything, whether it was rhythmic or not. You know, trying to dance to living in the past in five four. It's clearly not working, but that was the format. So we sort of, it was a bit of a joke. It, we, we we looked down on it because it wasn't serious music program uh, but it was fun because it was silly um, and then the old grey whistle test the, the, there were other programs where it was live and the pressure was on to, to give a good performance so the adrenaline it's what we did we played live and that's what we wanted to do on tv um, yeah and, and uh, it was raw you know that the, there was we had bad nights that the Jethro Tull, all bands, I've, I'm not going to name any, but you know, uh, I've saw bands where they were dreadful, but the same band would be amazing another night. Uh, and that's, I mean, it's quite a nice thing in a way that, you know, you could say, oh, did you see so-and-so? Yeah, it was amazing. Oh, what? And it's a, not a normal occurrence. So, you know, you, you, in another way, the fact that the, the, the level is set high now and it doesn't really de- sort of meander a tiny bit in and out. But then, and, and, and it wasn't just the band and the music and the performance, it was the PA, the halls, uh, just so many variants that, that made a good or a bad gig. And, and TV's the same. It was very, that there was limited control you had. Now, you totally in control you know i can safely say the martin bar band doesn't have a bad gig but the gear back then a lot of it was just not that good yeah blow up all the time and we're bringing english gear over to the states and and it was always blowing up (laughs) it was these big transformers it was a nightmare it was a total nightmare the pas were dreadful um you know, that the crowds were noisy and, I mean, in a great way. Um, and then when we went on stage, everybody had light up the joints. It'd be a cloud of pop. We just, you know, it's like a horror movie. We'd come towards the stage and we'd go, okay, guys, stop breathing now. Oh, my God. Fantastic. And uh, it, was brilliant. it was just different. So we went back and we looked at a lot of early clips of the band, and there was a, an early seminal performance, I think it was 1970, at the Isle of Wight. done obviously a ton of festivals over the years but that was one of the first wasn't it yeah and uh, we, we never made Woodstock we couldn't we that they closed it down before we could get up there 
and we were just sitting in New York waiting, um, which was a big disappointment. But then at the time, the Isle of Wight w- w- was an, just another gig. Uh, the, the the enormity, the importance of it didn't didn't really become apparent until way down the line. And, and I just did a big um, TV interview for it. They're, they're doing a big programme that, and they're putting up a museum on the Isle of Wight to celebrate that fest, that year, 1970. Um, and I hadn't spoken about it. This was only a few months ago. But then sitting down and talking through it, you go, wow. You, you, the list of people who were on that festival, it was phenomenal. Uh, it, it'll never, ever, ever happen again. Uh, same way that Woodstock will never, never happen again. Because you can't get those people together. Um, there wouldn't be a budget on on the planet, um, but it, it was a you know big social occasion. It, it, it was rough and ready. That I think there was maybe three hundred, four hundred thousand people, and then they broke down all the fences, and they say uh, in excess of six hundred thousand mm. people were there. I mean, it's outrageous. But in the moment, you kind of have no idea then how history would view that years no. later no because it was a uh, you know next year could have been bigger or it, it no we, we never thought about anything we we're just on a roll and everybody else we we're just sort of uh, running with it all, all the time and 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 nobody knew if there was a future what it would be you know uh, it, it, it was all you know short term that there was no long term plan for any band uh, so we were sort of writing the rule because we went fantastic and your reputation as a guitarist was growing uh you were in that upper echelon of the greats and i heard a great story when you were recording an album and zeppelin was recording an album in the same studio at the same time and you went off and were having a conversation with Jimmy Page and had to scramble back to the studio. You didn't want to miss your slot. It's similar. Uh, I was doing the solo to Aqualung and, and I hadn't seen them because they, they were just in the basement. They ne- we never came out, you know, late at night and, and they were the same. So we never saw them for a month or more. And then I'm in the middle of the solo for Aqualung and Jimmy Page came up to say hello. waving from the booth and I'm just going thank you I mean I couldn't stop right you know you, you, you got two goes at a solo max you know and uh, in Tull if you didn't get a good solo in one or two it was a flute solo Ian would take it and <laughs> and and recording in the studio I, I guess you guys went at one point 
like so many other of the English bands, you know, tax problems. You went to record something in France. The recording mm. process wasn't always silky smooth for you. The, the studios weren't were just nowhere near the, the quality that, that you get now. Uh, in fact, where we did Aqualung, um, Ireland studios it was always breaking down <laughs> like every other day just the gear would fail or the tape machine wouldn't work i mean th th there was all these variables that you really didn't need um and there's a whole sort of myth about <clears throat> great studios i was watching a documentary about i'm, I'm not going to know the name of it now um new york studio uh, you'll um, come up with a name um, straight away. Electric Factory? Yeah, yes. And, and it's, but whatever, it, it, it was so um, uh, normal. It was just a room with, with, with sort of, it was just uh, earthy, down to earth. You know, that, that, no high-tech gizmos. But, and we ne and we had those in London studios in the in the latter days. You know, they'd take us to these, you know, three, four, five million dollar studios, and they sounded dreadful. And and of course, you know, you thought, well, what's wrong with us? But essentially, that that they were built by people who had no idea what they were doing. But it was a myth. I mean, it was bullshit, and right. it was money bullshit. And and it wasn't until I moved to the country. I had a big barn with stone walls and I just thought, well, I can spend a million dollars soundproofing it or I'll, I'll just play in it. I played it. Of course, it sounds great. You know, it, it just sounds normal. Sounds like a room that could be anywhere. And then you got your desk or your computer. You think, hang on, you know, just plug in and play. You know, what's been going on all these years? It, it, um, it turned around completely. Um, and, and, and I, I love recording now. I love it. And <clears throat> I'm missing doing it right now. But uh, in those days, I hated it. It, it. I really hated doing it. Amazing. Yeah, no, it's all, it's all changed. I read somewhere that one of your favorites, if not your favorite album, was one of the more controversial of the band, uh, the album Under Wraps. Is that true? Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun to make Peter... Vitesse had joined the band. So P Peter Vitesse is, is a sort of larger-than-life character uh, and an amazing musician. And, and we were just sort of locked in the studio, but, you know, not locked, but uh, sort of kept ourselves busy. There was no outside influence at all. And, and we just had a great time making the record. So, so we loved it. But, um, but when uh, the manager, Terry Ellis, came to listen to the mix, he was horrified. <laughs> he was horrified. And, and we, I mean, we were just like, what's going on? You know, we, we, it's, it's great. Listen to it. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, it's the Aqualung was a real hard album to make. The band's performance wasn't great. It was the, everything broke down. Everything went wrong. It's a great album. Under Wraps was perfect. We had the best time in the world making it. Nobody likes it. Mm. There mm. you go. <laughs> so, so, so many of the bands of that era, um, they flamed out pretty quick. And yeah. like bands like the Yardbirds, you know, the run was five, six years. And mm. 
uh, I talked to Jim McCarty, who was the original drummer of the Yardbirds, and he said, it was just tough. We were constantly touring. You know, we'd be on these package tours. We'd work, you know, sometimes you were doing two shows a night and it was just too much. Yeah. Tall was unique. You guys went, you know, lots of guys in and out of the lineup. You as a, as a constant. Um, but you guys had a really long run, um, recorded an awful lot. Mm. You started your own recording as a soloist in the Martin Barr band, you know, going way back and of course still going strong today. You had a lot of guys come in and out of the band. How, you know, were you surprised that it lasted as long as it did? Well, uh, yes, but we were always in control. You know, we, we didn't have record labels pressuring us well a, a tiny bit we did with schedules but essentially we, we were in control of, of, of what we did when we did it how we did it recording uh touring so so at an, a very early stage uh, we took on the management um just the admin of the band and most bands we didn't want to know you know they just sort of had somebody do everything for them so it could be a rough schedule and you could do nothing about it. But if you're a band, you, you know the end result. So we were just sort of careful to do things in the right way, have time out, um, make schedules that works. Um, and we were successful. We went to a lot of amazing countries that made travel really interesting Uh and we just made sure that we, we, we never did, we were never extravagant, but we tried to make life comfortable as we could. We're actually engaged on a, an international tour at the moment. We've just uh, come back from Aberdeen where I got a stinking cold. This is a song that uh, they actually recognised, even up in the, the cold north. See if you recognise it. This has become a sort of a standby, and uh, we don't play it all anymore, just a bit. See if you know this one. Yes, that's it, of course, of course. <laughs> the famous Led Zeppelin's whole lot of brick. Remember it, Martin? Really don't mind if you sit this one out. My words burn a whisper, your deafness ain't shout. Make you feel better kinds of make you think Your sperm's in the gutter, your love's in the sink So you ride yourselves over to the fields And you make all your animals And your wise men don't know how it be And you traveled so much, you've been to every corner of the globe and, you know, played multi-night. I think I remember a, a five-night set you played here in New York at Madison Square Garden, just a block away from where I am now. Uh, it, was there a favorite place or as you look back, a favorite gig or, or it just all sort of melts together? My favorite gig would be the next one. 
Fantastic. That's a great answer. And, uh, <laughs> it's what I always say because <clears throat> I love playing. That I've only done one uh, gig since March uh, when we came back from South America very quickly. <laughs> we just got out. Um, <clears throat> and since the beginning of March, I, I did a gig with one of the girls that's on the records uh, at a, a little cafe in town, acoustic, and I loved it. I, I had a great night and there were 30 people because you couldn't have any more. And, you know, it, it, perfect. So I, I don't, I don't have favourites. I, I, I love playing. I don't, you know, I like I like to be in different. You know, I like New York. Why? Because I like sent, I like to go running in Central Park, and I like going around the reservoir because sure. of uh, Dustin Hoffman. Sure. The marathon man. Yeah, sure. I'd watch the film, and 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 I didn't know where that was. This was a long time ago, and and not many people went running, so I was in New York. I'm going to go in the park, and and I th- suddenly there's loads of people. I'm going. Oh, morning. Hi. Of course, they like ignored me. I'd never met people running, uh, and then anyway, so they are strange. Uh, and I, I'm I'm thinking it's just amazing. And then I find the reservoir, and I'm like, ah, oh, wow. And people are just staring at me like I'm a crazy guy. So anyway, so I, I, I like New York because of that. Right. I like it for other reasons, but not particularly because. Of you know the, the the gigs the audiences are any better or that the, the people are great wherever you go the audiences don't vary that much that the of people know me they know the music <clears throat> so you, you don't get people there for the wrong reasons anymore uh, and they're just so positive Pe- people just are so on your side at a gig it's it's no such well, I said earlier that there's no such thing as a bad gig for the band or for the audience. And the audience are always amazing and hope for me and hopefully for them, the band's always amazing. But uh, yeah, no, I, I don't have favorites. That's Even my kids, I don't have a favorite. Listen, I love your answer. Your favorite gig is your next one. I think that's a fantastic answer. So you've always been doing solo work. The Martin Barr band, you're a working band. You're out there, you're playing, you're working. And in listening to a lot of your stuff, there's a real spirit of reinvention of songs and putting new energy, not just playing the songs the way they were recorded. That must be a great source of energy and a sense of constant renewal for you to be doing things in a new way. Yeah, I I don't. I'm not doing it for the sake of doing it. Uh, and, and most of it, I don't touch, you know, but, but most of the songs we do, War Child, Bungled in the Jungle, Heavy Horses, Songs from the Wood, Teacher, Aqualung, <laughs> they're exactly like they were when they were recorded. And other ones, I, I just, you know, but maybe because I played them a lot, I want them to be fresh and exciting for me, for the band and for the audience. So I'm, I'm careful. I tread very lightly, but you know, I, sometimes I have a bit of fun, and uh, usually it pays off because the song's intact. I'm just sort of adding something or looking at it from a different angle, <clears throat> um, and and it, it, it's it's got a it's got to sound fresh. Every song we play on stage is there because we enjoy playing it. 
you know, the, the, and I never played Aqualung for five years. Uh, when Toll finished, I, I just didn't want to play it. And um, it was no big deal. I just didn't play it. And uh, why not? You know, right. it, it, it shouldn't be predictable. <clears throat> um, I, I don't want to have an agenda. And, and people are usually with me. You know, they might say, oh, I can't believe you didn't play that. I go, well, yeah, but I played that instead. And they go, oh, okay. Right. Well, that's tough. You know, listen, fans, I go see, I, I know that you have some roots at uh, Lanchester Polytechnic in Coventry. And um, one of the great Coventry bands who I love is The Specials. And, and who are still playing. And as a fan, you do want to hear the songs the way you remember them. Yeah, I'm respectful, and uh, um, yeah, but, but most of it is that way. Um, but but if 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 I mess around with it, I, I like to think it's better than the original. Otherwise, I won't do it that way. So you know, on this record, "Songs from the Woods" a bit sort of swingier, but I, I like it. You know, it's it's different. But people will tell me if they don't like it. They sure will. So, so tell us, there's a big, 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 big project coming up. I'd love to hear about it. And what can we look forward to hearing? Uh, well, I've got a DVD and that's a complete show in um, Edwardsville, Illinois, on from March the 19th of last year. Um, and it, it, it's, it's some of this music, but it's the whole show uh, with the two girls and with Clive Bunker and Dee Palmer. But that's only going to be out on my website. Um, and then I've written a lot of music, which I'm, I've sort of put up on the shelf, literally. And uh, But I want to come back out on the road. I want to do an Aqualung tour where we play all of Aqualung in sequence, because uh, that's the 50 years anniversary for that. Uh, and I want to get back to playing more of my music, because I've sort of, the toll things become a bit more, bit heavier in the in the in my stage set so I just want to re redress the balance and uh, I just think there's a lot more to get out of the uh, roads less traveled a lot of tracks we've never played I think we'd have fun doing them it's a lot of stuff and you've spent you know give or take 50 some odd years you know not constantly of course but on the road it's mm. got to be a tough adjustment what we're all going through now for someone like you that's used to being on stage, used to traveling yeah. uh, and used to performing in front of people. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's harder for a younger kid um, because I'm at an age where I've never had a summer off ever. Uh, and I had this summer off and, and I loved it. You know, I didn't love it, but it, but it, it was nice. And, and, I, and I didn't miss it, well, <laughs> it's hard to say. Uh, it was okay. It was a novelty, and and I and I and I had great things I could do, and I made the most of it. Uh, you know, I've had my, I've had a break. I'm I'm ready to go back, and you know, I just don't want to lose that that dry, that passion. Uh, I won't, but um, I, I don't want to get dispirited by it all. <clears throat> we've got to stay above it, as we all do. We, we we've got to. Um, put it to one side and deal with it. And uh, how to deal with it is a, an individual matter, but uh, we, we, we'll be dealing with it for a long time and uh, we, we're going to have to change and make um, you know, little, little changes in the way we are and what we do.
compromise. In, in your head, do you have a time frame when you hope to be back out there? No, no, nobody knows, but, but I, 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 will, I will never cancel anything. But the theatres might cancel, the promoter might cancel, which I think, well, obviously, you know, that, that they're carrying the uh, financial burden. If they want to cancel, that's it. But, you know, um, I, I just want to play. I, I want to do a gig, a proper gig, loud and proud. So I've said yes. And without really thinking about it, but you know, who I don't know. I am who I am. I do what I do, and, and there's there's no alternatives. Walking through forests of palm tree apartments, scoff at the monkeys who live in their dark tents down by the wall. Say a word and the boys will be right there with closet chips.